Today we're looking at the bathroom pass and the pen license. These are two tools, instruments that are widely implemented in schools. Uh, not all schools, but very many schools. So we're trying to understand what exactly they are. Uh, we're exploring our own experiences of them, or at least I share mine. Uh, we try to understand why they why they were ever popularized and whether or not they're even effective um, in achieving their ends. Uh, and then I give you my thoughts on a few topical issues. I speak about the Cape Town housing crisis, and I also speak about the Judicial Services Commission interviews. Uh, very, very scary things happening there, um, in my opinion. Um, yeah, stay tuned for my thoughts on that. And then I end off the show with free stuff as usual. Thank you so much for joining me. I have all of that and so much more today on the show. Let's get into it. Welcome. So chances are it's been a while since you even heard about bathroom passes and pen licenses. If the stats of my listeners are anything to go by, um, you're probably surprised. Uh, you had not imagined that you would be coming across um, content to do with bathroom passes or pen licenses unless, of course, you're a parent of a child uh, who is of school-going age. But basically, um, this is coming from... Um, a reflection, I guess, that I was having. I, I recalled, um, I guess, the phenomenon of bathroom passes. Um, I was reflecting on my own schooling and I was really wondering whether or not these things are even effective, you know, um, because they are, they're a thing. Not just in my school, I know um, they're popular worldwide in the Western world, definitely. Um, not in all schools, granted. Um, and I have you know, content to that effect a bit later on. Um, but certainly in my primary school. Um, so we had bathroom uh, passes uh, in primary school just to kind of, I guess, control students. But I was interested in whether or not there'd actually been any research, any development of the theory of the, you know, of the academics, I guess. It sounds strange, right? But I, if this is something that's so widely in implemented, you would think uh, it has some backing in science or at least psychology. So I did research to that extent. And I mean, I couldn't really figure out uh, how far back policies of uh, bathroom passes and uh, that kind of restrictive use of the bathroom in schools uh, date back to. Uh, but definitely, this is something that's been around, right? Um, and in terms of why bathroom uh, passes are a thing, um, they're a thing because teachers and schools in particular uh, are trying to optimize uh, on instruction time, right? So they're trying to limit the amount of time that students spend outside the classroom, uh, in the hallway, um, in bathrooms in particular, where they tend to be unsupervised. And that sounds pretty good, right? I think that's something we can all get on board with. But what is the actual effect that these um, bathroom passes and other restrictive um, incentives, I guess, and mechanisms around bathroom passes or similar to bathroom passes have on children? Uh, you know, what, are the, what is it actually doing, right? Now that we know what it's supposed to do, allegedly. Excuse me. So how are they used? Um, and I'm, I'm going to read now from the... Um, I'm going to read now from uh, today.com a piece writ written by Alison Slater-Tate who 
basically reports on a very terrible incident of a boy who, I mean, ended up messing on himself, right? He ended up urinating on himself at school, uh, soaking his pants because of um, bathroom use restrictions. And I have a similar experience. I... um, in primary school, I had an accident where I couldn't keep my pee in any longer. I know this is a bit TMI. We're getting very intimate. We're, we're getting to know each other. Um, but I mean, I, I'm not ashamed of it because I think this is my interest. This is where my interest with bathroom passes is coming from. Um, and I didn't even know it until I was this far into doing the research for this podcast. So um, in my experience, I was, you know, I was very well-behaved child. I, you know, didn't want to, I was very obedient. I didn't want to um, be on the wrong side of my teachers. I cared a lot what my um, uh, teachers and authority figures uh, thought about me as all kids do. Um, And obviously all kids consequently modify their behavior to um, impress their, their whatever, like adults or authority figures and especially teachers. But more than that, there there are schools that like add incentives, right? They add things like classroom pennies um, where children get um, bathroom passes for, let's say, uh, a few weeks or a semester or something. And they can either use those for actual trips to the bathroom or redeem those for grades or redeem them for something at a school classroom store, for instance, right? So there are other incentives that are combined with this bathroom pass thing that I feel don't make matters any better uh, in terms of efficacy, especially uh, regarding some of the adverse effects that we'll speak about. But so this piece written uh, by Alison Tate in today.com reads as follows, and I quote, This week, the mother of an eight-year-old Los Angeles elementary school student claimed her son was forced to wear trash bags to cover his urine-soaked clothes after his teacher refused to grant him permission to use the bathroom in November, unquote. So my instance is a little bit different uh, because my teacher didn't refuse to grant me permission. But as you'll see um, in the next piece that I'm going to pull up, it's not unusual, it's not uncommon for, for students, um, especially in primary school, um, to not even venture to ask, right? To be so intimidated by the way that, um, by, by the, I guess, discouraging attitude teachers have towards um, going to the bathroom during periods or going to the bathroom generally, right? Asking for for permission to go to the bathroom. Um, You know, you're thought to be a a problematic child, a troublesome child, um, you know, a troublesome student if you ask to go to the bathroom uh, and God forbid you do so right after break, you know. No one's going to let you go. No teacher's going to let you go. And I've always thought that that was unrealistically, it was so draconian. Even as a kid, I thought that there was something wrong with that because unfortunately our bodies didn't work that way right so there was obviously a mishap how come I need to pee so often if you're telling me that I shouldn't like that I don't get to pee that often like how come I need to though right so it teaches children a very unhealthy um, way of responding to Uh, their bodily functions or at least relieving themselves as per you know their body dictates or feels Um, so one mom speaks about a similar issue right so she posted on Facebook um, in terms of uh, the well her daughter just kind of 
coming back home with um, damp underwear sometimes, you know, not being able to hold in her urine. Um, she would ask her daughter why she doesn't just ask the teacher to go to the bathroom and the daughter would just uh, respond that, you know, she didn't want to waste her, her bathroom passes uh, because she wouldn't have... Um, like she wanted to earn pennies for good behavior um, and use those pennies to buy um, at, at, at the uh, or shop at the class store, you know. So a lot of schools may consider um, these bathroom passes and similar mechanisms to be effective because in terms of the narrow um, understanding, I guess, of the efficacy of these bathroom passes, they are, they are effective, narrowly so. Because if the, if the purpose is to discourage or at least limit um, children, children's moving around and presence in hallways or at least outside the classroom and in bathrooms during instruction time, these policies are doing that, right? Um, punishing children, uh, incentivizing them to stay in classrooms. I mean, if you... If you reward children not to pee, guess what? They're going to hold in their pee. That's just what they're going to do. Children don't know to be like, okay, well, dude, um, I'm actually, I've got a bladder problem, right? And so I need to pee. Children don't know how to rationalize. They don't know how to reason with their adults. It makes no sense to be so extreme, um, especially when you're dealing with, with, you know, children of this age. But so schools may consider this evidence that their policies work, right? Because students stay in classrooms and the halls are a lot clearer. Um, But what this means, this so-called success also means, is that kids are damaging their internal organs and self-esteem in a large way, right? So nothing is more terrifying and more mortifying than urinating and soaking yourself, um, in school, um, you know, everyone, I think everyone knows how mean school kids can be unless you are homeschooled. But even then, I think you have an idea generally uh, that little kids can be very mean. They can be very unpleasant. They can say some very hurtful things. Um, and so that is a very, it's a terrible, ex- I mean, take it from me. This this is something that I have personally gone through. Um, you know, thankfully for me, it wasn't as bad Um you know, but I, I can imagine the kinds of things people were saying uh, behind my back. I mean, already I, I, there are things and looks that I was getting that really did affect me at the time, you know, um, and even for a few years afterwards. It's mortifying. It's a terrible experience for a child. Um, but, on, but on top of that, even pediatric um, urologists say that there is very adverse effects in terms of the the uh, biology, in terms of what happens to the bladder, right, uh, of these children. When kids need to use the bathroom urgently or frequently, it's often because constipation has irritated those bladder nerves, right? So it causes the bladder to hiccup. Um, and if um, your student needs to use the bathroom urgently and frequently, that is probably a very good reason to alert either the nurse, the school nurse, or the child's parents. That is not a normal situation, and that's definitely not something to ignore, uh, okay? And I feel that this is something that's being ignored by teachers a lot. They probably don't consider this. It's it, For me, it's a bit... There's something very dark about... Um, you know, being so harsh on children, uh, being so 
unforgiving, unyielding um, to children who don't know any better, particularly with something so um, fundamentally human, you know, they can't really help it. And maybe we should speak about the kinds of things that could be put in place in terms of making sure that they're not just loitering around in the hallways, whether you have monitors there from senior grades or whatever else. Um, but let me know, what do you think? Bathroom passes? Did you have a bathroom pass uh, growing up in school? What do you think about the bathroom pass um, idea, I guess? Are they effective? Um, I think in the narrow sense, yes, they are effective, but they have very severe consequences that kind of mean that the ends don't justify the means, right? So there is another way, I think, that we can actually make sure kids optimize on instruction time um, and still respond um, as and when they need to um, to their bodily functions because at the same time for instance me if I was if 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 I was pressed and needed the bathroom, I wasn't focusing in class, right? So it's very counterintuitive to try and, you know, claim that children, you want children to focus more on what's being taught. The content is not what I'm focusing on. When I am pressed and I'm thinking, oh goodness, I don't know when this lesson ends and I'm in, a, um, I'm, I'm in the class of a particularly strict teacher or anything like that, or a number, a variety of reasons. I mean, you can imagine the kinds of things that motivate children or that, you know, yeah, at least make children anxious and intimidate children when it comes to speaking to adults. Um, so for me, I just feel like it does a lot more harm than good. What do you think? Uh, have you ever had a similar accident? Um, have you ever soaked your um, pants, your self, your clothes in school? Uh, share a bit about that. Come on, I uh, did a bit of TMI there. So uh, join me if you will, so that I don't feel so that I don't feel so left alone. But let's move on to the pen license. So the pen license, um, and I'm, I'm going to be giving a few responses from um, a, a someone in my life uh, who I, I guess, accosted <laughs> for responses on their experience regarding bathroom passes and pen licenses. I will be adding those voice notes at the end of the segment. But so pen licenses, why do teachers use pen licenses? What are they about? Pen licenses are usually, um, you know, just... Well, essentially that, right? A, a kind of permission to use a pen uh, when a child's handwriting has been, according to the teacher, of a high standard, of a good standard. Uh, that usually includes spacing, letter formation, uh, that kind of thing, fluidity and speed sometimes even. Um, and so uh, I, I received a pen license. This was a thing in my schooling as well. And I understand it's not a thing for everyone. Uh, but even here, I was very curious about does this kind of thing even help, you know? You think about these things when you grow up. You think about, you know, was that really necessary? Like, what's that about? Um, and so I, I looked into the pen license as well. Um, and I found that actually pen, pen licenses aren't very helpful, <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I was, um, I'm reading now from the magiclinkhandwriting.com website. Um, they wrote a piece that's so in-depth. It's, it's, I'm so glad to see that there are people who are thinking about the stuff and doing this kind of work. Um, you know, even before, I would have never thought people actually, you know, 
care about pen licenses in school. But essentially, um, the, the idea he ha- here is that children suffer because um, of pen licenses in, in a few ways. So the biggest negative impact on children is the feeling of failure. For instance, when they don't achieve a pen license, some children take a while. You know, there are a whole bunch of reasons why a child's handwriting might not might not be up to scratch, right? And especially because pen licenses are usually attached also to a sense of maturity, right? So you feel a sense of maturity after um, achieving uh, your or your um, pen license, acquiring your your pen license, you know, it's a point of pride for students who receive their pen license and their parents, you know. So other students can feel, you know, inadequate. You know, they might be socially excluded, which could result in a lack of confidence. So basically, their social and psychological well-being isn't served by this kind of thing, particularly when you consider that there's actually nothing about a pen that's special. So what this site actually suggests is just to let children start writing with both pen and pencil, right? There's nothing special about the pen. There's nothing mature about a pen. In fact, um, it is argued that the ink um, of, of, of a pen makes the fluidity better and helps with the speed, right? Um, but also pen licenses usually are accompanied with the use of a pen, um, erasable pens, right? Which I've always thought are the most useless things. I mean, they're cool, of course, when you're like, nine, uh, but they're not helpful. Um, and, and the idea here is children don't learn from their mistakes if they can erase them. But second of all, it's also time consuming, which doesn't help in terms of speed, right? So there are just a lot of ways in which pen licenses don't actually have the kind of efficacy you would imagine they're trying to achieve. What do you think about pen licenses? Do you think it's a rite of passage that is legitimate, that should be around? Um, do you think it enforces any type of discipline for achievement? You know, because these days we're not really in a world where people want to delay gratification, where people want to work for anything in particular. Uh, So what is your take on the pen license? Were you someone who got your pen license? I did. I was very chuffed about it. It, I was one of the first few to get my pen license. Let me know. What are your thoughts on the pen license? Do you have a child who has their pen license? Do you even care? And is this the first time maybe that you're hearing of either the pen license or the bathroom passes? Let us hear the responses that I got from uh, my very special someone who answered a few questions about these topics. So first, what was your school's policy regarding bathroom use? Uh, This is for primary and high school. Uh, Was it restricted? How did that work? Oh, um, yeah, we used to ask, uh, may may I please go out? Uh, No, the bathroom was never locked during class time. Amen. He didn't even have a door. And did you ever get a pen license? Are you licensed (laughs) to write in pen? A pen license? What's a pen license? Right? No, 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 no. I am Kumbul. I'm not going to sing Palanga Paul Pens. I'm Kumbul by the Hee Nanja. I want to sing Palanga Paul Pens. Think that happened in grade four. Yeah. All right, as we jump into the uh topics for today i guess the topical issues that have caught my eye in the news today i just want to remind you to connect with me on my socials i am at lele mutari underscore i really do like to hear from you and it's just really encouraging um it keeps me going it keeps me pushing uh when i 
kind of feel, uh, you know, demotivated or, you know, I feel like um, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm kind of chipping at something that's very unyielding. Uh, so give me a bit of hope, please, if you care to, uh, by just liking or leaving your thoughts. Um, I would really, really appreciate it. Um, you can also subscribe if you feel so inclined and share the content with whoever you think might find it interesting. Um, I try my best to stay on the ball with uh, responding to any kind of engagement. I'm trying to get to 1,000 subscribers. I really would uh, appreciate it if you helped me. That is Lele Motari on YouTube. So let's jump into it. I mean... The housing crisis in Cape Town is, at this point, it's kind of unfortunately um, familiar. It seems to be a story that's going nowhere. Um, you know, we, I mean, there are developments all the time, but really, you know, uh, we're, we're not really seeing any houses, you know, so I don't know what any of those developments really mean. Uh, but so in, in today's Excuse me. In today's news, uh, I believe this is courtesy of News 24. My resources now just uh, disappeared, so pardon me. Uh, but uh, courtesy of News 24, the uh, Cape Town, the DA rather, has uh, promised through their leader, John Steenhazen, to look at giving some of the golf course land over to, um, I guess, for the development of houses. Um, and so the King David Mowbray golf course is a is one that's, you know, been cited not just recently, but um, even last year, I believe, in 2020. Um, but also the Rondebosch uh, golf course as well. Um, these are have been identified as prime locations for housing projects. But I have a few questions on this. And I mean, share your thoughts, please, about this issue. Um, first of all, if you've been like if you if you know where Mowbray is situated um, in Cape Town, you yeah okay it makes sense it's it's a good place for housing for pe anyone who's looking for housing because it's kind of close to most of the amenities that you would need you know it's uh, relatively urban um, peri urban maybe even um, but it's close close enough to, to to opportunities you know for it to be a a good location for housing development but at the same time it's surrounded by places like OBS uh, is right next to it um, and. Woodstock, um, Observatory and Woodstock. And those are places that are very heavily right now undergoing gentrification. So I do wonder, in this development of housing that's going to be taking place in these places, are who's going to be able to afford to live in these places, right? What kind of housing is it? Um, you know, is it low cost housing? How low cost is this housing? You know, how do we know people are going to be able to afford this housing? Especially if we're talking about the people, the kinds of people who are occupying land illegally, are they in a position really to be paying rates and taxes, to be paying rent? Um, you know, how are we thinking on a, on a very like practical basis about um, what happens after we secure the land? Um, it is a bit unfortunate that we can't even get past getting the, the, the land for the development, but at least we're talking about, you know, 
giving over some of these uh, golf courses for that. But that would be, you know, just just one of my curiosities. And I think that's that's a question that I'm not hearing any enough people ask about. But let's move on to this idea of, you know, white justices and white lawyers, white judges, uh, not really being considered equally for the vacancies on the benches of South African courts. I feel this is so, so problematic. You know, um, I've been following the, the Judicial Services Commission interviews and, you know, they've been enriching, you know, as, as a student of the law myself, uh, as an aspirant attorney, um, they've obviously been something that's, you know, been insightful for me to, to learn about and entertaining, uh, I guess, also in equal measure. But so I don't understand what this pushback is. Um, uh, and I, 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 this is not just from Malema. I think this is just generally a vibe that I'm getting from South Africa where, or at least, yeah, I mean, I don't want to paint too broad, in, in too broad a stroke, but I'm getting an overwhelming sentiment that it does actually matter, like your skin color does actually matter in terms of your eligibility to serve on the Concord bench. Why is that the case? Why don't we want white men on the bench? Why don't we want white people on the bench? And I have a few thoughts here. First of all, if we if we care about representation, right? If we if we care about representation, which apparently we do, because we keep speaking about we need more female, black females uh, justices on the bench. If we care about that, surely representation also means like white people. I, it doesn't make sense to remove all uh, white people from the bench. Um, and even even then, maybe you could get a white person who happens to fit, you know, comfortably in, in the kind of intersectional transformation that's supposed to be happening. I feel like that's very, um, it's very dishonest, you know, uh, because it's, it, white men do exist, unfortunately, in our society, right? They exist in South Africa. They exist in South Africa's legal culture. To try to erase them from the apex, the bench in the apex court makes no sense to me, right? On the basis of representation. But also, I don't think that representation is necessarily the the criterion, um, you know, when allocating or at least when placing um, justices on the bench. But second of all, um, well, okay, just to complete that thought, I don't think that it is the criterion, right? So I'm okay with us just not considering representation at all. But because that's an argument that is forwarded by a lot of these people who don't want white justices on the bench, except they're willing to do it for everyone but white people, um, you know, uh, or at least if you're a white woman, maybe you might get a pass. But for white men, they don't seem to care that white men are represented, right? Um, at all, you know, let alone, you, uh, we're not even speaking about over-representation here. But second of all, I would say the, the Concord bench is the one place you want the most diverse pool of views, right? You want people to be on like the wildest ends of each other's, you know, perspectives. You want differing viewpoints. You want those 
kind of drastic differences in reasoning, in worldviews. That's what you need in the Concord. That's what helps to ventilate issues, you know, thoroughly. That's what you need in adjudication, in an application of the law, especially when we, we're speaking about, um, you know, lawyers who have extensive expertise, legal expertise in competition law, right? Or, or, or extensive uh, expertise in international law. We do, and in mediation, you know, in, in the case of, of advocate Alan Nelson, um, senior counsel. So it for me, it seems also very counterproductive. It seems like we're looking for a homogenous kind of groupthink situation in the Concord, which is not helpful in terms of uh, the application of justice. It's not helpful in terms of uh, discharging the actual duty of the judiciary. Um, and it undermines what the Constitutional Court is supposed to do. You want people who have represented the president in Maragana and did so successfully. Those are the people you want on your Concord bench. There, I said it right? I don't think we should judge lawyers for the cases they take because ultimately everyone has a right to a defense. And so somehow they're going to have to find a lawyer to represent them. Otherwise, we don't live in a society that is governed by the rule of law. And unfortunately, that is actually a founding provision of the South African Republic. So if you just open the Constitution, the very first section includes the rule of law. It includes non-racialism, these are fundamental principles of, you know, the government, the governance of South Africa. These are terms and values that essentially define our republic, right? So these aren't things you can kind of just, you know, just, you know, queef to the side, <laughs> you know, you can't just dismiss it. Um, and, and this is obviously not a laughing issue. It's not a laughing matter. But I don't know, it's, it's, it's a bit scary to think that nobody else sees this. And um, perhaps you'll let me know in the comment section if I'm being too extreme. Am I catastrophizing? I don't think I am. Uh, but I I just don't see how people don't see this, you know. You want as 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 varied a pool of opinions as you can get, um, you know, because that's how you get the best judgments, right? That's how you get, you know, that's the point uh, of of dissenting judgments, even of my jo minority judgments. That's the point of different arguments, you know. So I don't know. I I just I would I I appreciate. Um, different perspectives. I appreciate the idea to, 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 or at least I appreciate the opportunity uh, to ventilate legal issues um, as extensively, as comprehensively as possible. And so this idea of just, um, I guess, dismissing applicants, white applicants for the you know, posi position of uh, justices on the Concord bench, to me, uh, seems very harmful, uh, especially for the rule of law in South Africa. It does not bode well, but that's just me. Let me know what you think. That's all I have for you today. Uh, of course, these conversations never end. They continue on the socials. Please get in touch with me. That's at Lele Mutari underscore on Twitter and Instagram um, on all of these issues, not just the um, news uh, stories, but also uh, what we spoke about a little bit earlier on, the bathroom passes and the pen license. Uh, let me know if you have any thoughts about those, uh, anything at all that I touched on today. Um, 
give me your feedback. But until next time, please breathe, breathe deeply, drink water and pray. It has been an absolute pleasure spending time with you. Um, Oh, wait, I almost forgot to give you something free. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry. In fact, I forgot two segments of the show. I am so bad. Okay, well... We're going to jump into that. Pardon me. Uh, so if you've, if you've been around, you know that I actually made a very big oopsie because I was supposed to report back on the plans that we made on Friday. Uh, I did go on a solo morning walk. However, I didn't meditate. Uh, so there's that. <laughs> so yeah, we were supposed to go on a solo mon- morning walk over the weekend. Um, that's something that I did do. It was very beautiful, very serene. I happen to live in a very uh, beautiful part of the world. Uh, you know, I, I get to just take in the splendor of God's majesty um, all around me every day in every moment. I just get to drink in this massive, you know, mountain uh, and and this massive landscape and just the beauty um, of of God's creation. So that 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 walk was everything. I'm I'm it's definitely not going to be the first, the last time I do that. Um, and I'm. I direct you, I would direct you to a blog post that I wrote. Um, I always reflect on these something news that we try, or at least I always reflect on these plans, these weekend plans in the blog. So um, you can always find that before the Monday, I try to do those uh, as and when I complete the task. Um, but yeah, I did fall short because I didn't meditate, but it was it was a great morning walk. I'm glad I did it. If you joined me, let me know how yours went. Uh, where did you go? Where did you walk to? Um, I would have liked to hike, as I, as I said I wanted to in Friday's episode, but that didn't quite happen. Um, but it was still amazing, right? So, so that's my debrief. Um, I can't believe I almost left without giving you that. Oh my goodness, sacrilege. Uh, but so, uh, yeah, so that's my debrief. Let me know f- uh, about your feedback if you uh, joined me on that, if you were actually participating. And then free stuff you probably don't need. This is the advice part. Do it for right the first time, right? Do it right the first time, whatever it is, okay? That's the unsolicited advice I'm giving you to take into the rest of this week. Whatever you have to do, whatever it is you're trying to do, especially if it's something you're doing for the first time, just do it right the first time. Try to do it right the first time. I try. I tell my brother this all the time. I've got a little brother um, who tries to, you know, cut corners and finds himself having to do things twice or three times even, or takes forever doing them, um, just because he won't focus and do them right, do things right the first time. And I found in my own life um, that I've, I'm very, you know, I'm very much the same, um, and I think we all are. Uh, we kind of we're we're we we take chances. Human beings take chances, um, and it's just not helpful. Also, it's not an enriching thing to do. So, um, yeah, d- exploit every growth opportunity by doing things, trying your best at least to do things right the first time. Because also, chances are, if it's your first time, you're probably not going to do it perfectly, um, or even doing do it right. But you know, do it um, do it in. When I say do it right, I mean Perfect practice makes perfect, right? Not just practice, but perfect practice. So try to do it as right as you possibly can the first time. So now that I've given you advice you 
probably don't need, uh, but you can have anyway because it's free. And now that I've given you everything else I owe you, I'm going to let you go. Until next time, of course, breathe deeply, drink water and pray. I am praying for you as well. It has been an absolute pleasure spending time with you. I have been Lele Mutadi. Stay blessed. Ah.